Welcome to Youth Talk Climate, an environmental issues podcast by young people for young people. This podcast is created in association with the Alliance for Climate Education. Let's get to it. Here at the podcast, we believe that it is incredibly important to look at the issue of climate change through an intersectional lens, understanding how the climate crisis impacts frontline and marginalized communities the worst, and how our warming planet connects to many of the social issues we face. In honoring Black History Month, we sit down with Moses Wamalwa to discuss how the climate crisis directly connects to racial inequality in our country. After living in three different countries, Moses also offers an international perspective on this topic. His activism began at an early age with a fight against police brutality, and he currently works as a youth organizer for the Alliance for Climate Education. We thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and we hope you do too. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming. I think as, as you know, it's gonna be kind of centered around um, the direct connection between climate justice and racial justice um, and kind of tackling that issue. Sounds good. So if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, sharing where you're based right now, and then just a little bit about your current career. Wonderful, um, thank you. My name is Moses Wamalwa. I am currently based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I am uh, in the land, the occupied land of the uh, Seneca peoples and the Osage peoples, and just grateful for this opportunity. Currently working as a youth organizer here in Pennsylvania for the Alliance for Climate Education, uh, which is a national, oh, I'm sure everybody that's uh, listening to this knows about ACE. And if you don't, make sure you check, we'll make sure you check us out. Um, and working with uh, young people to take action uh, on climate change and um, other social justice issues that are close to our hearts. So could you talk about the um, movements or organizations that you've worked with in the past and how they've like laid the foundation to your activism today? Yeah, um, so the interesting thing is I actually don't come from a climate background. Before this, I primarily was really interested in racial justice. Uh, there's the issues around uh, police brutality in this country, the issues around just how black and brown peoples are treated um, across the world was something that was like deeply concerning for me. My choice and approach was uh, initially not from the activism perspective, but from the teaching perspective. So I first joined uh, AmeriCorps and was working with inner city, uh, inner city, inner city youth in elementary school to help them to do some summer reading loss prevention, as well as just some mentorship and just like some facts of life, like, hey, here's how to manage your credit. Here's how to develop effective habits in life. And that was really powerful and uh, moving for me and was also the place where I was like, this is something that I really want to do. And then on a more global perspective, sort of running to tap into my roots. My family's from Kenya originally, and I wanted to go back to the continent of Africa and sort of do some work there. And so I joined the Peace Corps and went to Rwanda, where I served for two years as a uh, English teacher and a youth organizer. And I was able to work with students and young people and teachers from uh, the village in like really, really impoverished conditions, but wonderful, amazing people who have so much to offer and so much wisdom to bring to the table. And I was able to really gain a much broader perspective than I had uh, while I was here in the States. Came back 
And while looking for a job, I actually ended up stumbling across ACE and the youth organizer position, which was like my first real big push into um, the movement space. I mean, outside of my own personal work, I've been doing some uh, spoken word and um, had engaged with the movement space in a personal capacity. But like as a professional, ACE is sort of my first foray into uh, the movement space and uh, finding out that ACE is not only a climate organization, but also an organization that is dedicated to a lot of the same uh, issues and concerns that I have, primarily surrounding uh, racial justice. I was like, yeah, this seems like a great fit. And also one of my passions is working with young people like yourself. And I think you guys are not just the future, but also the present and really excited to have sort of have your voices be able to be centered and um, given a lot of agency to, to do a lot of amazing stuff. So that's sort of where I came from in my background. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing and just kind of giving insight to where your fight for racial equality began, you know, um, at a very young age. And I know you mentioned intersectionality there, and I think that kind of ties into ACE's values. Um, but how would you describe intersectionality? Um, so interse intersectionality for me um, would essentially just be the realization that a lot of the issues that underlie oppressive systems are the same. And so that's going to be white supremacist edifices, which are like the crux of a lot of the issues that we, we struggle with. Um, that's going to be this sort of mentality of capitalism over um, people. And so those are a lot of the same issues. And like, once you realize, and once you take that step further and realize that there's so much more to be gained uh, by people who, by oppressed people working together, that's where that intersectionality comes in. That's when you realize that fighting for climate change is also fighting for black lives, is also fighting for indigenous lives, is also fighting for um, other issues that sort of have a lot of alignment. And when we can find those areas of alignment, when we can find those areas of shared, um, shared struggle, we can be a lot stronger together and we can be able to really be more strategic about taking on um, a lot of these structural issues. Yeah, adding on to that alignment, with your international perspective, have you, um, have you seen the climate crisis like become intertwined with racial inequality? Absolutely. Um, so I don't know if there's, there's this map that is shown where you'll see the, um, the greatest, the countries that have the, the, that are doing the most damage to the, um, the environment as compared to the countries that are suffering the most from, um, climate incidents. And you'll see that there's a glaring, uh, separation. And so like people who tend to not be contributing to the crisis, are also the people who tend to be most adversely affected by the um, extreme weather events, by uh, famine and droughts and things that come as a result of uh, the changing um, the, the the changing climate. So we're we're seeing basically that in in a lot of cases, it's countries here in America being one of the producers, India, Asia and then countries in South America and Africa are being like very adversely affected, even though they're not necessarily contributing uh, to the same extent. Not to mention, of course, um, the rise in uh, climate refugees. Um, and this is becoming like a much bigger issue that again is affecting a lot of people at a very disproportionate rate. 
Yeah, I think it's so interesting hearing your perspective because you have so much experience in other countries as well. And not all of us have that. And do you have any kind of like honing in on your own community? Like, have you witnessed any examples where you're living of that intersection as well? Um, so I'm relatively new to Pittsburgh, so I don't have like specific examples that I can say like, oh, this is uh, so-and-so that I know. Um, but I can I can definitely talk to where there's a really big intersection between, um, especially specifically here in Pittsburgh, between um, fighting for Black lives and um, fighting against climate change. And so one of the things that we've realized now with COVID-19 is if you are someone who has uh, asthma or if you have like previous, if you have previous uh, exposure to pollutants, um, you're gonna be at further risk, right? And so here in Pittsburgh, one of the places with uh, some of the worst air quality in the world, we, we see that the places, the neighborhoods that black people and tend to live are the ones that are nearest to the factories, nearest to where the pollute, the source of the pollutants, right? And as a result, these communities are gonna be uh, most affected by COVID. And that shows out in the numbers and the statistics you'll see where black and uh, black people and ind indigenous people are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And so these are just like really obvious examples that you can sort of see where it's like these, this group of people because of where they're being forced to live due to economic disparities are being exposed to pollutants at a higher rate. And then now there's this global pandemic that's affecting people who have compromised um, air, airways and compromised immune system and everything at a higher rate, they're gonna be more affected. And so this is like a fight that both people who are wanting black liberation and empowerment and people who are wanting to fight against the effects of climate change and against um, these major pollutants, there's a lot of shared commonality there, just right here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and that's just so timely and present, you know, that ties in so many issues that I feel like we're all thinking about every day. Um, so I guess kind of moving into like more of the movement for Black Lives, do you think, I think every social movement kind of works different and has different strategies. Just from your experience, do you think there's anything that the climate movement or kind of the environmental movement in general could learn from the activism shown in the movement for Black Lives? That is an excellent question. I think there are some, so there's some, there's some pushes right now in the climate movement that I really like. One of them being the acknowledgement of Black and Brown activists and sort of, because before this, uh, there was a time when the climate movement was very white um, and the climate movement was also very much focused more on uh, preserving the land and the animals and ignoring, uh, not ignoring, but not necessarily prioritizing people. And so that's something I think is changing, but could change faster and could change at a much broader rate that uh, essentially could be learned because the Black, the Black Lives Matter movement is centered around lives and it's centered around people and it's centered and it prioritizes the lives of people over property, the lives of people over um, econ economic things and everything. So there's that prioritization of the lives of people, which I think would be really, if that could become sort of like the driving, the driving impetus of like the climate movement could be really powerful. Um, another thing that I've seen is uh, that's, that the Black Lives Matter movement had been doing really well is acknowledging sort of that intersectionality with a lot of different issues um, and sort of like realizing that um, 
a black life is still a black life, even if that life is trans, even if that life is part of the um, LGBTQ community, whatever the case might be, black lives matter. And that's something that has, you know, taken time, but I think the, the breadth of the movement is sort of moving in that direction. Um, and so that's something I'm really happy to see as well with the climate movement where I'm seeing a lot more indigenous uh, climate activists getting recognition. I'm seeing a lot more um, black and brown uh, climate activists getting recognition. I'm seeing a lot more international activists getting recognition in a way that they hadn't before. And I think these sort of areas of power building and sort of empowering people who have already not, they're not new to this, to these movements, right? Like these are people that have been a part of this movement for a long time, but now giving them the recognition, giving them the resources and the funds that they need to really impact, uh, to create the change that they want to see is improving the climate movement as a whole. And that's something we've I've seen even here at ACE, like we, we've become a much more diverse team. And that's something that I'm, I'm glad to see. And I'm just excited to see it in other climate movements. And I'm hoping that that's something that will uh, continue to grow because this is not uh, one, one group of people is not gonna be able to tackle climate change. Like it is the fight of our lives and it is the fight of all of our lives. And if we can get to a place where we are all working together, I think we'll be a lot more effective. I completely agree. I think it's like critical that climate leaders are really incorporating racial equality as sort of like the forefront. Absolutely. So where do you see youth in the climate justice movement, either now or in the future? Do you have any like, do you have any hopes or dreams? Yes, um, absolutely. This is the area that I'm probably the most excited about, right? Is uh, I, obviously based on, as you can tell by my job, I love working with young people and youth are like, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to overstate this, but I don't think I can. Y'all are the hope. Y'all are the big dream. Y'all are the, the potential solutions, right? Like um, one of the things is when you think about young people throughout history, like when it came time for drastic changes, when it came time for taking action, when it came time for creating new and exciting ideas and new and exciting solutions, oftentimes young people were at the, at, the, at the helm. They were the people leading that charge, right? And I think a lot of people, so when you look at um, climate change and this fight against climate change, there's sort of a couple different approaches, but the two main ones are gonna be like, all right, we're trying to sort of like fix the things that have been broken, um, realizing that so much has been broken that it's going to be very difficult to um, to fix everything. And also realizing that the systems that we kind of have operating right now are set up in such a way that we really can't fix the core issue, right? Then the other way is sort of reimagining what the future could be. And this is where young people have the most strength, is y'all have not been, you haven't fallen into a pattern of thinking or a pattern of imagining, or you've not been, your reality is not yet set. And so as a result, you're able to imagine other possibilities that people might not even be able to conceptualize, right? So a lot of adults, not all, but many adults have sort of like, this is how life is. This is what we've known. This is how we've done things. This is how things are done. Whereas young people are able to sort of challenge existing dynamics and be like, why? Why can't we do it a different way? And most of the time, it's probably not gonna be better. 
but there's that chance where it might be better. And that is how we grow. That's how we progress. That's how we change. Um, so I'm really excited. Uh, and that's like, I'm talking on the philosophical level. On the practical level, Gen Z and like has been the most activated, not the most, every generation sort of has that movement. But in this time span, like when it comes to campaigning, when it comes to protesting, when it comes to taking action, writing letters to the representatives and like caring about like the political realities and the economic realities, y'all have been out here. Y'all have been really taking action. Um, and that's what's really exciting to me is because when you can sort of activate and mobilize enough people, that's where change is going to be. Um, so I, I find I find that there's a lot of excitement around having young people involved in the climate movement. And not, not just because of the fact that you, young people are the ones who are going to see the impacts of climate change the most, but also just because of the fact that they're also the ones who have the tools and the creativity um, and the energy to, to, to solve them. Because there's a lot of people who've been fighting a long, long time. And the reality is you get tired. You get tired. Like there's been activists who've been at this fight from who knows how long and they're still in the fight, but you definitely get tired. And having that in that, you pump in that new energy, you pump in people who are willing to go to the marches, you pump in people who are willing to really protest and do some direct action or indirect action stuff. Um, and the movement really gets that new life and is able to sort of keep going along with the new minds and the brilliant ideas where we can also take some technological perspectives where who knows who will invent the next thing that will be able to like get rid of plastic in our oceans or who knows who will invent the next thing that um, will be able to really tackle some of these bigger picture issues. So I'm just really excited. And I think young people are, are the answer for a lot of our problems. But at the same time, if they're given support, if they're given funding, if they're given agency, right? It's not just saying like, young people, y'all are the future, but then we're not giving you all the tools and resources and things that you need to actually affect change. But saying like, hey, I think you you have great ideas. Let's try them out. Or I think you you have like a voice at this table. So let's actually hear your voice, but then work together with like, all right, so like a young person might have a great idea, but they might not know how to go about implementing or putting into action. Pair up with an adult who might have that experience, who might know how to do that thing and build a mentorship relationship. And there can be a lot of really positive impacts. Definitely. And I just like, I know you mentioned kind of how young people kind of have like this value of kind of reimagining and rethinking. And just like circling back to the Black Lives Matter movement, I feel like that's also present there too. Kind of that, I don't know, willingness to have kind of a reimaginative perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I mean, Black Lives Matter started as a hashtag, right? And now it is, it became the biggest social movement possibly in the history of the world and it was a hashtag that's like it's crazy but it's also phenomenal and it also shows like it shows the power of social media right which is something that before this people hadn't been necessarily using as effectively as a tool for social change and there's and like these movement spaces are constantly innovating they're constantly coming up with new ways to to engage with people. Like right now we're living through a global pandemic where most of us are stuck at home. And yet we still see these movement spaces growing. We still see people being able to organize. We still see people being able to um, engage with social issues in a powerful way. And a lot of that is being spearheaded by young people. Yeah, and I think young people definitely recently have used like art as a, as a form of 
both like self-expression, but also activism for climate justice. Um, and so you touched on this briefly, but you use um, spoken word and poetry. So have you used that for your activism? Oh, that's a great question. I love it. Um, and I think art is one of the most powerful ways to communicate because you sort of get past like the surface, right? Like a lot of times when we, when we lead with facts, when we lead with statistics, we're only touching on the surface of a person. But when you hit people with emotion, when you can make people feel something, you're able to connect with them at a deeper level and you're able to get them to really feel and potentially be able to empathize with your position. And so for me, that has been telling my story, right? Like I've told, um, I've had an experience, I've had a, an interesting experience growing up where I was a child born of, of African parents who came in. So I'm first generation immigrant here in America, which is, but I, I mean, I was born here, but I, my parents had just freshly immigrated to America, which is an interesting experience, right? Who was raised in majority white neighborhoods for a majority of my childhood which really reframes sort of my identity and how I feel about my blackness and my who I am in America and how I saw sort of the disparities of treatment where I would go into a store and I would be followed around where my black white friends were literally stealing from the store and nobody would catch them or care. And I was also seeing like disparities of how people would treat me. I would have great friendships, but then if there was sort of like that's there was always like they always felt like there was a block there. And so my poetry was as a coping mechanism, as well as trying to help people understand what it's like to be a Black man in America. And as things, as I grew uh, more comfortable in my identity, as I grew more intentional about my work, I've started writing things uh, relating to like revolution and like wanting to sort of have some sort of like real big push and movement. Um, and there's a lot of like power to that. Um, there's a lot of shared like when when I could do a, a spoken word piece about revolution um, in a room full of uh, Black people in Baltimore and sort of just like expressing that anger and the frustration as well as that hope and that desire for a difference, like there was a lot of healing and there's a lot of like processing that can happen there and a lot of like shared power in that space. So uh, I really, I really believe in the power for art to create change. I really believe in the power for art to motivate. There's definitely some spoken word artists who have like, I've, I've listened to a poem and been like, wow, that is amazing. That is like, not just amazing in terms of like, uh, how well it's written or how well it's performed, but amazing in the way that it made me feel and it, how it really like, was that spark that I needed to be like, all right, like I need to do something or it need, or give me the push to continue doing something. Um, and I think this can be captured in a lot of different mediums, right? Like it can be painting, it can be traditional art, it can be songs, it can be poems, it can be um, expressive art pieces, it can be whatever, dance. There's so many different ways to contact and engage with people. But I think the power comes in being able to slip past that initial guard that a lot of people have up, where they're, when, you, when you're pushing against their sort of like, conceptualized their conception of how reality is right but with art you sort of slip past that barrier and you're able to talk to them as a person to a person and I think yeah that can be a really powerful place like there's definitely people who have like listened to music and been changed or had like a shift in in their in their perspectives absolutely I just love talking about kind of and you touched on social media before too and just kind of these different creative ways to reach people 
I don't know. I just think that's so, yeah, like you said, it's very powerful. Um, and then can kind of bring in people into the movement who maybe otherwise wouldn't have been called to it. Uh, all right. So I think- Unfortunately though, there's also, there's also the flip side of that, right? Where uh, a lot of these same tools are being used to radicalize and make people, turn people into extremists. So like meme pages are now starting points to radicalize people into alt-right white supremacist beliefs. And that's another reality that we sort of have to acknowledge is that all these things sort of are a double-edged sword in the same way that we can utilize them for a lot of powerful, positive social change. They can also be utilized to really get people who may not, who may not necessarily have very strong beliefs for or against an issue into people who have very like hateful and awful beliefs, which is unfortunate, but it's sort of like a reality that we have to acknowledge at that same breath. Definitely. And I feel like that's kind of been at the forefront of American politics, you know, especially recently. Yeah. And so I think one of our last ones here, it kind of connects to that, actually, which is nice. But what do you think is important for climate activists or activists in general to keep in mind as we kind of commence a new era in American politics and we see this shift in power? So two things. I'm going to take it of the normal direction. I'm also going to take it a very different direction for a second. So as we're as we're shifting to a new era, I will I will continue with your wording. We have to remember that just because we have jumped out of the fire does not mean we are safe or we're home safe or anything like that. The previous uh, leader was simply a symptom of a much larger structural institutionalized issue. And our fight was never with an individual person or an individual ideology, but rather the structural, the big picture sort of um, uh, structure. And so that's something that activists need to remember. We cannot let off on the gas right now, which is a terrible example, but we need to keep, if this is a car, we need to keep pumping that gas. We need to keep going faster and faster. We need to go harder um, because this is where we might be able to push through some positive legislation, right? So this is not the time to be complacent. This is not the time to uh, feel relaxed, like, oh, we've uh, thrown out the big baddie and now we're fine. No, nah. uh, the issues are still there. There are still people dying. There's still people who are being disproportionately impacted by the effects of both the COVID pandemic, uh, severe weather crises, as well as uh, racial violence. And so we still have a lot of work to do. The second thing, however, is if there's one thing I can tell activists is practice self-care because burnout is real and we need more activists. We need more people really fighting the good fight. And we need the ones that are, are fighting the good fight to be taking care of themselves so that they don't burn out, so that they don't end up uh, really cynical and really sort of demotivated. Because we're fighting, if, if I can use video game analogies, like we're, this is the big boss, right? And we're, we're honestly, we don't have the right equipment. Uh, we're, we're severely underleveled, right? And so this is, if we don't take care of ourselves, we're going to end up, it can be very easy to fall into a, this, we're never going to change. Like this is, this is too big of a thing for us to confront. So self-care is the main thing I would say, like for yourselves, for any activists, anybody listen to this, take care of yourself, really get in touch with nature, take a walk sometimes, engage with friends and family, uh, eat food that, you know, feeds your, your body and your soul. Find a hobby, something that you like doing. If you need to take a take a break from the movement space for a little bit, 
because honestly, the more we can keep being effective, the better, and it would be better to take a break so that you can be a little bit more effective in the future than forcing yourself while you're not able to really be effective. Uh, so yes, we really need to put pressure in the new, the new president and the new people in power, but at the same time, we also need to take care of ourselves. That is wonderfully put. And I feel like definitely that second piece of advice about self-care is something I don't think we hear enough either, especially as young people kind of entering the movement. Um, and to your first point too, about needing to push forward, I just like, I know that ACE, I'm happy because I've seen how ACE is already kind of demanding things. I'm, I'm pretty, I don't know, I've gotten message about like their build back fossil free, <laughs> you know, campaign. And so it's just very cool to see that they're already making that push um, and have that same mindset. Awesome. I guess, is there anything else you'd like to add um, to any of these points or just anything else? No, I mean, I, I would just like to take this time to thank y'all for uh, doing what you're doing. This is amazing. And again, like I was saying, young people doing awesome things. This is an example of young people doing amazing things and really excited to uh, see the result and just encouraging y'all to, again, listen to the last part I said, which is take care of yourself. Self-care is really critical um, and engage with engage with your with your friends and colleagues to get them to also sort of be to start taking action. There's something very fulfilling about doing some like doing something about something you care about. And so um, it has been my pleasure to, to, to have this opportunity to chat with you all and uh, would be excited to, to do so again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Before closing up today, we'll be hearing a clip of Moses's spoken word. He wrote this poem in 2016 after working with 12 inner city students as part of his AmeriCorps service. As I sat down, pen in hand to write this poem, I thought about revolution and began to write, begging my pen to conjure up theory speeches to capture hearts at the furthest reaches. But the only words that escaped my pen were from a song that just seemed wrong. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. Wheels on the bus go round and round, all through the town. What do wheels on the bus have to do with revolution? Hmm. Revolution means circular movement, wheels, bus, children. Then it hit me. Revolution is 24 young eyes staring up at me as I read worlds into their imagination and set galaxies spinning in the infinity of their minds. Children aged four to 12 years young beyond belief, but older and wiser than consolations. They don't yet know what it means to be a teenage mother or a drug-addicted father or even what death is. Not yet splattered with the blood of the forgotten, dressed in the clothes made with slave labor they are sent to. They're young and innocent, minds capable of conjuring up airplanes and flying to the African jungle to converse with monkeys because for them, Monkeys aren't what cops kill daily, and the African jungle is still magical and mysterious. Not raped and plundered to feed the capitalistic cravings of a white world drunk on power. And so they sit in circles and sing the wheels on the bus go round and round, because for them, the wheel still spins and the bus still moves and the world still revolves. But for us, the wheels on the bus stand still 
silvered over by layers of apathetic ice, our laughter as children long forgotten, cycles of hatred consume us. Women hate their bodies because they're taught to. Men hate their women because they're taught to. The litany of sins tattooed to our skulls, taught at our schools, creating cycles and hatred and violence that got us screaming, Black Lives Matter, but only when the TV cameras are on. And so we're stuck, our wheels aimlessly spinning, knowing that for some of us, even when the wheels on the bus do take us to school, we might leave in body bags. So when I tell you that I wanted to write a poem about revolution and what came out was children sitting in a circle singing, I need you to listen. See, revolutions are seesaws swinging like pendulums across history, slicing our bodies into submission. So when you shout revolution, you have to be ready for blood, ready for war, even if your weapons are words, because of these children. These bright stars plotting courses across the universe, they are the revolution, the unblemished future that we can shape with these hands, these lips, and these bodies. So for them, we shout, because history repeats itself. I mean, history repeats itself. I mean, history repeats itself until we change our story. Thank you for listening to the Youth Talk Climate. Part two of our Climate Justice is Racial Justice series will be released later this month, where we talk to a member of the Sunrise Movement about the responsibility that climate organizations have in fighting for Black lives. A very special thanks to today's guest, Moses Wamawa, for sharing his insight and experience.